Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. As part of our New Year revamp of the podcast, we're bringing you another topical, multi-topic episode this week. We'll be talking about Partygate, Sue Gray's report, accusations of Tory Islamophobia, COVID death toll, and of course, artificial wombs. First up though, the biggest story in the world at the moment is undoubtedly the perilous situation on Ukraine's borders where Vladimir Putin has amassed over 100,000 Russian troops ahead of what many fear may be a possible invasion. Is Putin just playing his usual geopolitical games, or could we really be facing a protracted, bloody conflict? Now, there are plenty of Western analysts and, frankly, useful idiots chucking in their two cents about Putin's plans, but we thought it would be better to speak to someone who knows Ukraine inside out about what's really going on in the country. Alyona Hlifko is a former member of the Ukrainian parliament for Yulia Tymoshenko's Homeland Party, and she's currently head of strategic relations at the Henry Jackson Society, as well as a regular CapEx contributor. I started by asking Alyona what Putin's really trying to achieve with all this sabre-rattling. I hope he is only trying to achieve his ulterior motives, which could be bargaining something out of the West. First of all, when we look back into spring of last year, 2021, when the first build-up occurred and when they first started their so-called military exercises on the borders of Ukraine, that prompted Biden to propose a one-to-one meeting with President Putin. And back then, if we remember, that was the time when the country was shaken by Navalny being put into prison when he was just poisoned by the FSB agents with the Novichok nerve agent. So Putin definitely needed some legitimizing in the eyes of Russians. And he chose that way to distract Russians from internal problems, from all the social unrest that was sweeping across Russia. Because we remember those hundreds of thousands of people going out into the streets and protesting the decision about Navalny. That was his distraction technique to accumulate his troops around the Ukrainian border, call out Biden to the meeting, and create an image of this international conflict that's about to happen. Now, the situation remained tense because, of course, Belarus is now involved. Um, since Lukashenko completely gave into under Putin's control, 
And, you know, their so-called union state is now progressing and is closer than ever before. Which we can see with the, the way they're transporting military personnel across the border without any problem. Definitely. And Lukashenko even recognizing that Crimea is now Russian, which he didn't recognize before uh, last year. So we're clearly seeing that Belarus is now under full control of Russia. And it's, of course, scary for Ukrainians. We don't really know what to expect. I mean, of course, on one hand, we've been at war with Russia for 80 years now. So there is some sort of sense of being used to constant tension and being used to Russia attacking at any point in time. You know, there's conscription going on at all time. Now they've issued a conscription for women to go to the front line if need be. Uh, to be doctors and work in logistics and and that sort of thing. So Ukrainians are getting prepared. What to expect from it? Whether Putin will want to just achieve some international wins for his internal audience, because we know that Russia is on the brink of just completely collapsing in terms of its economic sustainability. Does he want to distract his Russian people again from some real problems that are within the country? Or does he actually want to reestablish himself as a global power, mm. which is his constant issue? Or maybe it's all of the above. How genuine do you think the, the rhetoric we always hear about Russia wanting to protect its borders from expansionism? I mean, is that actually a real fear or is it just an excuse, a, a piece of propaganda, really? Especially given that I think I was reading the other day, only only six percent of Russia's entire border is taken up by a NATO state. So it's, it seems a bit of a, a strange claim to me. That is exactly correct. I think even Ben Wallace, the British Defense Secretary, mentioned that in his essay last week that it's only six percent. It's one sixteenth of Russian border that is now uh, bordering with NATO. And what happened when Russia was bordering with Latvia and and other NATO members? I mean, it already has a border with NATO. So what was the issue before? Um, I don't think that NATO is encircling Russia in any way. And frankly, I don't think that Putin's claims are sincere. I think he's only using that as a means of manipulation, akin to the ones where he was saying that he's going into Ukraine or Georgia or Belarus or Kazakhstan, the most recent example, to protect his Russian speakers. Mm. And on a personal note, I mean, you presumably speak to people back in Ukraine, friends and family. How do you think average Ukrainians are feeling at the moment about the prospect of invasion? Does it seem like a very imminent thing or is it something is it something that's been hanging around in the background for quite a long time? Well, it's funny because I have many friends texting me and asking what is actually going on. It seems like the West is really concerned. And for us, of course, back in Ukraine, it's been a normal thing for eight years, as I've mentioned. But with all the news coming in from NATO and more troops coming into NATO member states that are uh, bordering with Ukraine, people are getting concerned more and more. The anxiety is definitely growing. But of course, as I've said, I think we are all prepared for any outcome of this situation, both for the war, which will be tragic for both Ukrainian and Russian people. Um, but we're also hoping that there's still means to resolution via diplomatic channels. And what do you think about the, just to kind of pull it back a little bit, there was an essay that Vladimir Putin wrote, I think last year, it was about 7,000 words long. It was entitled something like On the Unity of the Russian, Belarusian, Ukrainian peoples. I mean, 
What do you make of the, his sort of claim that they are actually all basically one people? Well, that's just bizarre. It's like saying that English and Scottish are one people. Yes, we're neighbours. Yes, we're all Slavs. But we are completely different people in terms of our mentalities. Our cultures are different. Our languages are different. We're used to being brothers, just like Putin claims in his article. And we had a very nice and brotherly feeling for Russians before this. I mean, obviously, we have relatives across the border. We have business ties, cultural ties. We used to have, you know, even the same writers and pop stars and everything was shared up until 2014. Now, I feel like Ukrainians are feeling less and less as if Russians are actually our brothers. But coming back to your point, we're definitely not one nation. And if President Putin does want to claim that, then we should look back at the Kiev and Rus that he so much likes to refer to. It was actually the territory mostly of Ukraine, going back to the northern duchy of Novgorod, which was way later in the 12th century. But, but the rise of Kiev and Rus had nothing close to Russia. And that was all people uh, from Ukraine. So why don't we start saying that Ukraine is a title nation and we should just annex half of Russia because we feel like it. It's just nonsense. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, wouldn't, like, I wouldn't really like to see you try, but uh, <laughs> we shall see. I think Ukrainians are sane enough not to go yeah. into that. Uh, there's a very good book. It's, probably, it's been updated, actually, in recent years called Borderland by um, an English writer called Anna Reid lived in Ukraine for many years, which talks a lot about this and about the myth that Ukraine is basically just part of Russia or uh, Ukraine has been referred to as Ruthenians or little Russians or whatever. Um, but do you think there's any kind of animosity between normal people towards each other or is this kind of just a, a state level thing? It's a definitely a state level thing and it's, it, it's fake. It's never been there. It's never been authentic, that sort of feeling. I remember even growing up in Ukraine, and I'm from the west of Ukraine. There was no such thing as looking at even eastern Ukrainians, let alone Russians, as if we're dif different people or we have different backgrounds. There's no feeling of inferiority or superiority. And I do remember exactly the time when that narrative started appearing in Ukrainian media. And I think that that's where Russian propaganda goes back to is 2004, when we had our first orange revolution in Ukraine, first democratic revolution that when Ukrainian people decided to go away from uh, autocracy, basically. And I clearly remember seeing the first ads. I was the first year student of political science in my local town. And I remember the first ads on TV saying like, okay, so this revolutionary gang that's now in Kyiv on Maidan, they do think that perhaps Western Ukraine is superior to Eastern Ukraine and they've decided that they're gonna rule the nation now. But where does it come from? And I remember seeing that and that was so clearly a propaganda because it was actually an election ad for the pro-Russian political party in Ukraine. So we've seen that in front of our eyes, how Russian propaganda slowly overtook those messages and try to articulate them in a way where it started dividing people. But that's completely doctored and it's unnatural. Mm -hmm. And just finally, um, in your piece, just to come back to the piece you wrote for us, you talked about how kind of grateful Ukrainians are for British support and that actually there's been a quite, 
quite sort of unified, decent response from Western countries. Do you think that that response has done enough to forestall a conflict? Do you think the Kremlin is surprised at the strength of the reaction? And, you know, will it have some effect? I think it's definitely enough at this point. Uh, maybe not everyone will agree with me, but I think it's also very important point in time when the West has to definitely showcase its support. And I think, going back to your question, that Putin is definitely surprised at the level of support and unity that the West finally has for Ukraine, because that's not been the case since 2014 and 15. And actually, I think he didn't expect this level of response. Going back to 2015, when Minsk agreements were found, and um, to the Normandy format meetings, where basically they've installed the narrative that it's the Russian separatists, Russian nationalist separatists in the East, and Ukraine should give them autonomy, and that it's all caused basically by internal problems. So we're moving away from that narrative, and I think now Putin is really surprised that the West is actually standing by Ukraine. But it's also important not to overdo it and not to cause these extremely high tension right now to cause into any conflict outbreak. Because I think as soon as NATO comes even closer or steps on boots on the ground in Ukraine, which it's not doing, and I think that it's actually a good thing, even though we're not getting some actual military support with soldiers from NATO in Ukraine, I think that's a good thing because that will leave Russia without an excuse to say that NATO is fighting in Ukraine for Ukraine. So I think the the answer to Putin is being curated at the moment very carefully and in a very smart way. And I think that's the way to go forward. Aliona Klifko there, with perhaps a more positive take on the Ukraine situation and the West response than you might have seen elsewhere. One man who's certainly not having a very positive time of late is Boris Johnson. With yet more party allegations, a police investigation and the still-to-be-published report from Sue Gray, the Prime Minister certainly has a great deal on his plate besides birthday cake. To discuss Boris's travails and some of the week's other big stories, we were very happy to welcome Arya Babu to CapEx Towers. Arya is a researcher at the Entrepreneurs Network, a group which does a great job advocating for startups, and she's a regular CapEx contributor on topics like tech, science, feminism and, of course, entrepreneurs. So, guys, obviously the main story of the week is still Partygate. It feels like we've kind of gone round in circles. The last time we had the podcast, the main thing we were talking about was, can Boris hang on? Um, and there is a risk that by the time this goes out, we record on a Thursday, we publish on, uh, on a Friday, uh, that some dramatic new developments will have happened. Um, I mean, do we think that the publication of Sue Gray's report, whenever it arrives, is going to be the thing that makes the big difference? It could plausibly. People are clearly very angry. Um, and if Sue Gray's report says, yes, Boris knew he was breaking the rules and he knew what he was costing the British people with the lockdown rules, and I think that might be enough to tip people over the edge. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth thinking about how political scandals often unfold. If you think about uh, what happened to Matt Hancock, he was clinging on until the video came out. I think sometimes something like a picture or recording or whatever she might have, a bombshell email, can really sear into people's minds the, the reality of these things. And something like that, something unexpected like that, could tip it over the edge. Yeah, I think the thing about like, kind of a telling image, a lot, a lot of the kind of confusion over this is we still don't actually know what's even going to be in the report or what she's going to be allowed to publish. Because 
And I think a lot of people, you know how these things go, if she, if she redacts anything, people will scream that there's been some kind of conspiracy, whereas actually it can be quite legitimate concerns about people's privacy, anonymity and so on. Some people won't want to give evidence if they know that they're going to be sort of outed. Um, we know that I mean, there's all sorts of intrigue about even just Dominic Cummings' evidence. There were these rumours that he was going to go in himself in person, then he said, no, I'm actually writing in. So even... We seem to have had a week or more than a week of just endless back and forth just over the actual process of publication without thinking about what is actually going to be in it. Yeah, I think the reason why we, we are still talking about Sue Gray is because so many MPs have said that they are themselves are waiting to see the report before they make a decision about putting in their letter to the 1922 of it. It's not really us that have made this up, it's MPs. Yeah, I mean, do you think, um, Aria, do you think MPs are looking for a kind of to be able to say, aha, here's the thing. I expect a lot of them are looking for an excuse because up to now, I'd be very surprised if lots of them didn't know that this hadn't already been happening. Like, you can't have that many parties in Downing Street full of Tory MPs and full of civil servants without MPs hearing about it. So I think a lot of them need an excuse to say why they are acting all of a sudden. Right. It's yeah. such a good point. I mean, this is what annoys me about the whole kind of construction. It's, oh, the people who made the rules break, broke the rules. Come off it. Everybody broke the rules to some degree. Really, the emphasis should be on the first half of that construction. The people that made the rules disregarded them because they knew that they were stupid. Yeah, there was a good piece in The Atlantic um, by Tom McTague about how this... It was kind of a psychoanalysis of Boris Johnson, actually. I'm not sure, you know... I, I don't claim to be to have any great insight into the Prime Minister's soul, but that this is kind of it stems from a you know a totally sort of lax attitude and lack of taking the kind of game seriously. Um, I mean, Alice, I, you're far too modest to say so, but you've written a piece about this on the Critic about how this is kind of I forget the phrase you used, but it's something like a sort of displaced trauma. A lot of the anger that we're seeing is people trying to rationalise what they went through and thinking. And it's much easier to direct your anger at, at some people rather than, you know, thinking that it's just been a horrible experience. Yes, I, I think the point that I was trying to make in, in that piece was that the real reason everyone's so angry about this isn't that they followed the rules. It's that it makes them feel like the, the sacrifices they made to follow stupid and petty rules, to the extent that they did that, that they were chumps. Um, and it reveals the pettiness and the unnecessary nature of so many of the rules. And that's what infuriates people when they think of all the kind of isolation, the loss and the grief that they've been through. People want to tell themselves that it was all worth it for the greater good. But that doesn't make it true. So even when people were following the rules, um, like weren't following the rules even, um, there were still things, sacrifices that everyone had to make just because of institutions and stuff. So there are people who really wanted to work in the office but couldn't because all companies had shut their offices. Um, and then they see um, flagrant dis rule breaking like this. There were also people who weren't there you know, for healthcare. They weren't there to be with the, there for the birth of their children. They weren't there for funerals. So lots of people still made massive sacrifices. Even if they were occasionally going for parties outdoors or whatever, they were still having to make sacrifices that they knew were pointless. And then to see that the government also knew they were pointless then makes it much harder. Mm. I'm quite interested in the kind of scramble to defend Boris's position as well. We apparently have this WhatsApp group of 100 MPs, which is it's just called support, by all accounts, <laughs> which is like, I don't know, it's, it takes neb nebulous to new depths. Um, one of the odder ones I saw earlier this week, and we ran a piece on this by Henry Hill on um, Wednesday, was Jacob Rees-Mogg went on Newsnight and said that, oh, if... Um, 
if Boris Johnson were sort of defenestrated, voted out, whatever you want to call it, then we'd have to have a general election. Um, I mean, what do we think about this? I, it struck me as sort of, while a very creative reading of the British Constitution. I don't think it's true that we have to have a general election. I feel like we've had prime ministers. I mean, I might be wrong, but I feel like we've I had prime ministers. May <laughs> springs to mind. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, the, the beauty of having an uncodified constitution. I mean, I don't think he's wrong that it might be good to have an election after electing a new prime minister. It makes sense to do such a thing, but it's not how it's been done before. So it seems like Jacob Rees-Mogg is really grasping at straws, probably because this is his way of keeping his job. Yeah, but uh, Alice, do you think that it's actually in... Let's just say, we're not, we're not really in the business of kind of saying when the, whether the PM should go or not, but would it be in the Conservative Party's interest to have an election? I don't think it would at not all. Not with the polls as they are at the moment. I think he's clearly just trying to scare MPs off putting in their letters and think, you know, you're in a seat with a tiny majority. Mm. If you have to defend your, defend your position, you know, next week with the polls as they are, you'll lose. And I think that's a, a, I think that's one of the interesting points about some of these red wall seats with very thin majorities. If you think about Christian Wakeford's defection, he's sitting on a majority of about four hundred. He could very easily have had four hundred angry emails from constituents, and across similar seats, they'll be seeing this, those same kind of levels. I would imagine. Yeah, and it these seems, uh, seats were, but sorry. I was, was going to say, it seems implausible to me that these MPs have to worry that much as well, because if there is a new leader, then I suspect the Tories will regain their bounce back um, to the lead, because the reason they're polling so badly is almost definitely because they hate Boris currently. Yeah, I think there's, there's a degree of that. I think there's also my, I think what the argument that Henry makes in his piece that I have some sympathy with is that if you're going to go to the public with an election, you have to have a compelling reason to, and 2017 is the absolute kind of epitome of that. The reason they, one of the reasons they didn't do well is that people were like, well, why are we having an election? And the old Brenda from Bristol, too much politics tendency, I think, um, could come into play. Well, 2017 was a real example of Theresa May going back on her word another time because she said that she wasn't going to call an election and then she did. She said she was going to deliver Brexit. She was, wasn't doing that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it will probably make people angry if you promise a certain degree of stability. You promise politics is going to be over and then you've accidentally inflicted loads more politics on them again. Yeah, that, that's a good point, I think. That was the great kind of promise of 2019 was less politics in all our lives. You know, mm. a nice, clean four or five years... It's still actually technically supposed to be five years because they haven't actually repealed the Fixed-Term Parliament Act yet. Not that it makes a great deal of difference, but just um, a bit of sort of constitutional trivia there. Um, I mean, how have you changed? Uh, two weeks ago when, um, when we discussed Boris, we put a kind of percentage uh, on whether he'd be in power in a year's time. Alice, if you, you said sort of just above 50%, I think. I think I said um, more, more likely than not. Uh, I, I think I'm probably moving towards less likely <laughs> now. Um, I, I'd be surprised if we go into a, a, the next general election with him as leader. Yeah. Um, I, I just think that his management style is uh, it's clearly not very effective. We're not delivering on our promises because there's too much distraction. Yeah, there is. I think a lot, of, a lot of people have said that as well as the kind of party stuff, it's that underpinning it, there's a lot of resentment for the overall agenda or kind of lack of it. These aren't, I mean, these aren't particularly traditional conservative things that the government is doing with kind of 
spraying money out and decarbonising and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the government are delivering on the promises of the 2019 election. I mean, I guess we are out of the European Union. And I think for a while people were willing to forgive them because COVID was obviously an exceptional circumstance. But they've had a year or so to start to implement their vision. And it hasn't been very good. It's been saving cats and dogs in Kabul and like oh, yeah. a bit Don't of spending. And like nobody, still nobody knows what levelling up is. So it doesn't sound like the government are doing anything they said they were going to do. I think that's a good point as well. But the party stuff is distracting from the ability to carve out that agenda as well. It's become this vicious circle. So they are producing this white paper on levelling up. But I, I don't think it's going to really like land much because all this other stuff still going on in the background. And frankly, for political journalists, and I sort of speak as a former kind of lobby reporter, it's just so much easier and more fun to write the party stories than it is to write to read the whole levelling up white paper I bet the party stories get wider read as well because mm. oh, they incite more anger more. Yeah, yeah way more you don't have to find an angle when someone's like oh cake oh is it singing why was lulu little there you know this stuff it's got human interest sprayed all over it and, and this one is also as we were saying before it's so personal because everyone has given up so much to fight this virus that that the idea that people were taking the piss frankly it yeah. just, it's offensive to every single person in the country. It's an insult, not just to the Queen, but to all of us. So, I mean, well, that's a cheerful, yeah. <laughs> if the Queen isn't insulted by being told that we have a presidential political system. I, yeah. um, I mean, There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let's move from the immediate political drama to something a lot more long-term. And we've all picked our kind of favourite story of the week or something. Um, and Aria, one of the reasons we got you on as our guest of the week is that you've written this piece in a magazine called Works in Progress, which I thoroughly recommend everyone looks at, by the way. It's really interesting, well done. Um, and it's about artificial wombs which is something that could really change the very nature of what it is to kind of be a human being. 
which is, I think, probably more interesting than whether someone ate cake or not <laughs> in a thing. So could you just, I mean, just for our listeners, briefly, what's, what's the story here? This is a, a, sort of a new thing, but it's actually been in, around for decades, the idea. Yes, yeah, so I've been interested in this idea for, I think, probably 10 years or so now. It was, um, the idea is that human beings can be grown outside of the human body and instead in some kind of, like, test tube is one of the ways people put it because we're used to IVF and talking about test tube babies, but it's probably more like, um, a, like a very warm incubator um, with oxygen. Um, it used to be like a big focus of feminists in the 60s to sort of liberate women from being the childbearing class. Um, and then it sort of fell by the wayside as more winnable things became top button feminist issues. But because science is progressing so quickly and the speed of science feels like it's speeding up, even if that isn't the case, um, it seems like this technology could be within reach. And there are real artificial womb companies that are trying to realize this end. It is probably um, going soon babies who are born like prematurely will probably be put in more womb-like environments instead of incubators they um, they seem to have very good effects for lamb fetuses so we are getting closer and closer to being able to grow babies outside of the human body so i think i think there's two questions here and alice there's one is the desirability and one is the viability um probably quite an apt word for for this mm. um do you think that this is something that couples are going to look at and think yeah or or do you think that that pregnancy is such a kind of innate part of being a, a hum, of the human experience that people are going to look at this and think, oh, no, not for me. I mean, I think the obvious um, place for, for this kind of technology is for same-sex couples or infertile couples. It would obviously be completely revolutionary for, for people who are otherwise unable to have children. But what I found so interesting about reading your article is it's, it's this kind of dispassionate, rational assessment of what is like the most animal and irrational part of human experience. Um, and so, yeah, as, as a mother, um, I hate that phrase, but um, I was reading it thinking, yeah, of course, it's absolutely insane that we go through nine months of pregnancy. It's crazy that like 90% of vaginal births like tear your vagina um, like it makes you squeeze your pelvic floor just thinking about it. Um, but then the other half of me is like that there is something very primally significant about having created your own child, having grown it in, in your body. And, um, and I think that that's actually like the root cause of so much gender equality. I think it's interesting that you talk about this from a kind of feminist perspective because I think that's such a huge part of the reason why women work less after having children. Um, you know why it's it's usually mothers who take care of the babies when they're sick it's because of that like physical attachment um and there's the novelist rachel cusk i think has a great way of putting this she talks about like the primitism primitivism of the mother that voodoo in the face of which the mechanism of equal rights breaks down and i think that's i, I think that's exactly what this debate uh, engages yeah i definitely think the people who feel most strongly against artificial wombs are mothers and i think there's probably something to the fact that they've like they've gone through something that they feel like um really um brings them really close to their child um and that is probably something that's worth thinking about as well i don't it's really difficult to know um because obviously children who are adopted also seem to be like very loved by their parents and by all reports fathers love their children too um <laughs> but but there does seem to be something special about the mother-child bond. And it might just be because women women seem to love children a lot more just generally. Um, and I think there is probably something to the idea that women are more nurturing at, by disposition. But it could be that like that hormone cocktail that you're hit with like immediately after birth is like intrinsic to how you love your parents. In which case, that's going to be a very difficult question if this technology does become 
something that is viable and usable by people? I think that um, having, obviously, I can't speak about what it's like to give birth, but I definitely um, agree with the idea that, that there's I, there is a difference for me personally there was a big difference between how I felt in terms of, kind of bonding with my daughter when she was born it took me quite a while to feel that same kind of strength of connection whereas weirdly one of the things you have this thing called NCT probably most of our listeners have heard about about it it's kind of charity to help new parents and one of the things they teach you about is the kind of is all that that kind of hormone cocktail that you spoke about where um, and it's amazing to learn about the kind of very primal things, the way that newborn infants will literally like climb up their mother's body and stuff like that. And, mm. and obviously dads don't have that. But as Alice said, the, the, the context we're talking about using this technology in strike me as ones where it would be best for people who would never have that opportunity anyway. So is it as much of a kind of ethical issue there? Yeah, I think it's definitely true that the people who will benefit the most from this are people who can't access parenthood um, through any other means. Obviously, surrogacy is an option for lots of people, um, but it's still it's still difficult to do and it still requires that a woman like make a massive sacrifice in that case. Um, so artificial wombs will probably make it much cheaper for infertile and like straight same-sex couples to have children when they otherwise wouldn't be able to. Mm-hmm. And what's the time frame you think? Because in your piece you mentioned the first patent was in the mid-50s for an artificial womb. And, and I think I'm right in saying that we kind of have something similar to this anyway for premature babies who are put in incubators, neonatal incubators, which mm-hmm. do the same things that a womb would do in terms of feeding them and keeping them alive. I think if there were no medical ethicists, the technology would probably be viable reasonably soon. I think it seems very quite easy, actually, to grow embryos up until the ethical limit. So if that's 14 days. So we don't know when that gap's going to be from the beginning half. And from the second half, it looks like um, because it can grow lambs, it will probably be able to grow human beings. It can grow mice fetuses for a very long time. So it's almost half of the d- entire gestation period covered by technology that already exists. But um, because these ethical limits exist for what we can do with human experimentation, and I think this is obviously very good. You do not want children um, to be born and then to have these horrible suffering periods and experimental vats that are painful, and then end, you end up with like disabled children who can never like have full and complete lives afterwards. You don't want that to happen. Um, so because of these experimental limits, I think it's going to take a long time to bridge the gap between what we have now and what we are going to have in you know, maybe 100 years' time. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to make an estimate. I would probably say 60, 70 years. I think the other really interesting thing in your article is that you talk about sort of medical ethicists, but also just sort of uh, data gaps, sort of underfunding of research into women's health. You know, there are so many other things that are holding back this technology. Yeah, there are loads of side benefits. I think part of the reason to be really interested in artificial wombs is by um, going for a sort of a moonshot policy, you'll end up accidentally discovering all kinds of things. Like we've been talking about hormones. Um, like the way the endocrine system works is something that we're all very confused about. Like you, there's lots of, there are loads of discussions about what the pill does to people, like how it changes their emotions. Um, and there's new research about how like oxytocin nasal sprays might cure autism and things like that. Um, by doing research into artificial wombs, we'll learn so much about oxytocin and estrogen and progesterone and all the hormones that impact our lives constantly in a way of making wombs viable as well. Mm, That's fascinating. Uh, My final question is just, do you have an idea how much it costs to make one of these things or are we still in the kind of prototype phase? 
we're still in the prototype phase, so I don't think it'd be very easy <clears throat> to to suggest it. So IVF is probably is about I think thirty thousand pounds per cycle. Um, no, it's ten thousand pounds per cycle, but it's a one in three chance of working. Um, so that's the very beginning. You would need to do something similar to IVF. You would then need to build a bag and stuff. So at current cost, it would probably be like fifty, sixty thousand pounds, um, roughly the cost of a surrogate, I suspect. Mm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a bit of, uh, in terms purely in terms of the kind of cost thing mm. of something like artificial meat, where the early cost is enormous yeah but the more it gets taken it's a classic kind of economies of scale thing i think yeah it? exactly if everyone were using artificial wombs, it wouldn't be i wouldn't surprise me if mcdonald's would give you like a <laughs> like a like a 10 quid option or something right <laughs> interesting mcbirth's yeah. yeah something for us all to uh, chew over um right. amazon prime yourself oh, a baby see. yeah <laughs> um i mean moving we're kind of moving backwards now because Alice, you're, you've chosen your story of the week, which is about um, Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Now, this came up because um, Nusrat Ghani, uh, who was a minister, a transport minister, I think, um, said that she was sacked because of, in her words, her Muslimness was making people uncomfortable. The chief whip, Mark Spencer, said that that this was an accusation aimed at him and that he completely rejected it. There's quite a bit of sort of he said, she said about this specific claim. But on the broader question, I mean, is this is still something that's plaguing the Conservative Party anyway, isn't it? Well, I wanted to talk about this story because I find it so strange and, and confusing. And, and, you know, we, I don't, we don't really know what happens, but, you know, I, she's not lying. I don't think she's making it up. And I suppose maybe I can offer some insight because I worked for uh, an MP in a neighbouring constituency who was from the same intake. So these were people who elected in 2015. They were part of David Cameron's majority. They include sort of people like Tom Tugat, Tugendat and even Rishi Sunak. These are really like one nation group. Um, and you know, I, I know them a bit, and I know that they were incredibly proud of having the first female MP among their number, especially in such a traditional Tory seat like Wealdon. So I just find the idea that that her religion was a problem for people in the party so utterly baffling, and I don't understand how this can have happened. Yeah, it's something that. I mean, Ari, do you think this is something that kind of goes under the radar? We spent a lot of the last. And it's not an either-or, I should stress that very strongly. But we have spent a lot of the last four or five years talking about anti-Semitism in the UK because of Corbyn and Labour and all Corbyn's outriders and stuff. But Islamophobia, I think, especially considering the number of Muslims there are in the UK, probably gets a bit less press. I think it does get less attention. I think it used to get more attention before the anti-Semitism scandals in the Labour Party. Um, I believe it is a bigger issue... um, simply because it's more visible um, if someone's um, a Muslim, so therefore they probably get more harassment or abuse um, just from like people on the street who walk past them. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if um, she was receiving um, Islamophobic comments from people, even if like her main supporters and the main people around her are very like proud of the fact that they've got like a Muslim woman um, in their center. Right? You'll always have like unsavory people and sometimes they can be very, very vocal. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, as well, I mean, on this, um, Alice, I, I take your point. I mean, I personally spent the last 10 years hanging out in Westminster, spending a lot of time with Conservatives. I'm, I can't say I've ever heard anything personally. But there was a report in the Singh report, and that, that had 1,500 complaints that it was dealing with 
within a five year, and that's only within a five year period. Yeah, they, sorry to be to be clear, I wasn't trying to say that I don't I don't think that there might be uh, anti-Muslim racism in the Conservative Party. What I find baffling is that this would be said to her face by the Chief Whip. Right. Um, of yeah. course, yeah. Uh, th- just uh, it just doesn't say anything good about the the whipping operation. If it's true, we should stress, because he is very, (laughs) very vehemently denied it. And he also said that he considered it defamatory. Although, in my experience, MPs say things like that quite a lot and quite seldom actually end up... It it seldom ends up in court. It's an absolutely bizarre way to sack someone, if that is what happens. I think, also, sometimes people can have the nicest will in the world and accidentally say something that's misconstrued. Um... Like, he might not think that he said something as xenophobic. He might not think that he's accidentally done a dog whistle, but she'll probably be more primed to listening out for that sort of thing. So it could just be, like, complete miscommunication yeah. between the two of them that's now become emotional and also very public. Mm. Yeah, mm. We, don't, we just don't really know what happens. Yeah, it's just I, it's a very odd and upsetting story, I think, for anyone who sort of... There's an institutional thing here about the inquiry as well, which is that she said that Boris Johnson basically... She had raised it with him and then was told to go down the kind of party route mm. whereas her problem was with the party she didn't want that only now mm. are we getting a cabinet office inquiry then you're having some people sort of supporters of the prime minister saying oh well, why is she bringing this up now it's to damage him at his lowest ebb I, th- I think that's a bit of a stretch i don't think uh, i don't th- i think it's on the margin in terms of damaging him <laughs> considering all the stuff that's come come before i'm afraid and i don't say that to minimize the seriousness of it but he's so in the mire that um we had a piece, there's a kind of another kind of raw political element to this, isn't there? Because we had a piece by uh, Rakib Essam on the site on Tuesday this week about how, in his view, as a British Muslim, his kind of co-religionist, if you like, and he's very careful to refer to communities, there's no single British Muslim community, but share a lot of kind of classically Tory values that quite socially conservative, quite traditional-minded, and that only one in ten British Muslims, roughly, votes conservative. I think mean, that's quite a surprising, don't you think? Yes, yes, that is surprising. And uh, Rakib made a, a really good point about how yes, these, these people who should be natural conservatives are people who are sort of family-orientated, who are aspirational. I mean, there's a generalisations, but um, uh, And that the Conservative Party is massively missing a trick by by not reaching out more to them, and this is certainly not going to help. Ari, what's your view on that? Do you think the Conservative... In my lifetime, the Conservative Party has changed a lot. I mean, I don't think you would see a cabinet like we have now, back in the 90s, for example. It was very male, stale and pale before, and I think they have made a bit of an effort, you know, to change. I think lots has definitely changed. I mean, so now, what is it, that British Hindus and Sikhs are much more likely to vote Conservative than Labour? I don't know if that bore out in 2019 as well, but it did up to that point. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if it's just a matter of the direction of change. So British Muslims will start voting Conservative at higher and higher rates, but they're a more recent immigrant group, so it'll take longer for them to, I guess, feel like they can, almost. Um, It might correlate with wealth as well. Um, It might be that British Muslims are a poorer group. I don't know if that is true. Um, And therefore, on a demographic level, they're voting Labour for other reasons. So I think, I mean, I... I should stress I'm not an expert on this, but another piece by the same author, um, Raki, talked about this in quite a lot of depth. And he found that in terms of like educational outcomes, for example, British Bangladeshis have some of the worst. So it's, you could talk about different groups within different communities. That, I think what, what comes out of it all is that there's a lot of texture mm-hmm. and yeah. kind of difference between Interestingly, groups. apparently Bangladeshi girls do very well. Um, 
it's there's got a really big difference between boys and girl outcomes in the Bangladeshi community, which is interesting. Yeah, and I think it sort of gives the lie to the kind of BME. I think mm. I feel like that's getting used less now. Than I it think was so before, because it doesn't really tell you very much, does it? No. It's quite a kind of reductive um, thing. Right. So our final uh, story or topic of the week is is my own, um, and this is a little bit online, so I should apologise in advance for that. So it concerns, but it, it concerns COVID as well. So there is a um, a YouTuber called Dr. John Campbell, who's very popular, and he's got one and a half million followers on his channel. And he put out a video earlier this week that it was entitled Freedom of Information Revelation. And I should stress the word revelation um, about this. And the basic premise is that uh, 17,000 people have died purely, in his words, of COVID, i.e. that's the number who only have COVID on their death certificate. And that, this is kind of taken up by a lot of people who are convinced by their this idea that loads and loads of people have actually just incidentally had COVID and happened to die. And the most classic, the kind of purest expression of this idea is that, ah, uh, oh, well, people who get hit by a bus and have COVID are listed on the, on the COVID stats. And I, I wrote an article about this on the site earlier this week where I've gone through basically all the stats. And it's just interesting to me on a, for a few reasons. One is that by putting doctor in front of your name, you can get yourself a lot of credibility where it's not necessarily due. Um, so John Campbell, in this case, has doctor in front of his name because he's got a PhD in nursing education, which is great. And like, fair play to him. He's done 27 years working in nursing. But it doesn't make him, as you can tell from the video, it doesn't make him an authority on statistics or epidemiology or anything like this. I mean, uh, Alice, what's your sort of take on this the kind of popularity of kind of cod science over the last couple of years i mean i'm not sure i can really speak to why it is that people you know it's kind of it's on the both sides right it's your, it's your kind of lockdown skeptics and your covid fanatics your kind of mad hypochondriacs who are the most obsessed with all of this stuff um and i i'm not sure i can really explain why why that is, but I guess, I guess what I would say, and a point that you made in your article as well, is that I don't think any epidemiologist has really covered themselves in glory during this pandemic. That, that is true. That is um, point, you know, yeah. the sage models have been wildly out. Um, so, frankly, we should all perhaps take more science with more of a pinch of salt. Aria, you're a science grad. Um, do you <laughs> think that people kind of people have a misconception of what science is actually about and what it, you know? and how people communicate ideas. Yeah, I think people put statistics on a pedestal, especially when they're not particularly numerate themselves. So you hear numbers um, about like the proportion of people who have COVID, and then you think that is a fact. When right, actually, yeah, under yeah. all data, there are really like complicated questions under all, almost under all, almost all scientific categories um, have very, very fuzzy boundaries around the outside, but you have to try and categorize because you have to try and communicate to people a sense of what's going on with COVID. Um, I suspect the reason only 17,000 people um, have COVID as their only cause of death on their um, death certificates is because COVID will also kill you via like a respiratory problem or that's something. So like if you have COVID, you might die of lung failure. Yeah. So mm. the, the, um, the thing with that is, that, sorry to butt in, is mm. that the, the 17,000 figure is true, but what it's telling people is not what they think it is. Mm. It's not that like that's the, the real number of people who died with COVID. 
because for a start, the car crash thing is just nonsense. Like if mm. you get hit by a car, car crash is listed as your thing. COVID wouldn't feature yeah. as what's called an under the underlying cause is the thing mm. that started the chain of events that caused you to die, essentially. And in 92% of people who have died and had COVID, COVID is the cause, the underlying cause. It's not uh, by the by. Yeah. Um, but like you say, it could be respiratory problems. The number of people who have a, um, a pre-existing condition in this country is absolutely enormous. Well, we're quite fuzzy with the definition of pre-existing conditions. So early, early in the pandemic, there was a statistic that I think everyone who had died of COVID had a pre-existing condition. But sometimes that condition was like depression, which is completely... Dementia was a very common one. Exactly. Some of the older people. Exactly, which is completely unrelated to COVID. So yeah, they did have a pre-existing condition, but almost all of us have been ill at some point in our lives. Yeah, and I mean, even the Prime Minister said that he got so sick with it because he was fat, he probably wasn't expecting to die any minute. I think you can list obesity on the death certificate. I'm, I might mm. be wrong on that. You can certainly list something like diabetes. And the Smoking point, you can list. Yeah, and, and the point is that these people who died of COVID, and the actual number is over 150,000, it's not 17,000, they had it not been for COVID, the vast majority of them would still be alive. And that is the point. Yeah, the average numbers of years lost by someone who's died of COVID is something like 10 or 15 years. So it, it's like, it's a phenomenal right. tragedy. Yeah, and like, I think this is another thing, that, another kind of meme that's gone around, a statistical meme, which I think again gains credence because it has that kind of patina of scienciness, is that, well, the average age of death is 82 or something, and the average age of a COVID death is 82.5. And, and Boris Johnson apparently wrote a note saying, get COVID and live longer. <laughs> the point here, I mean, it's so elementary, it's, it's quite elementary, is that that's the average for the whole population. If you are 80 years old, your life expectancy is about 90, as you say. But again, it's this kind of, I don't know, Hopefully we're at the end of this kind of debates now because we, we're, we're recording this the day after Plan B has been lifted and we can all go around without masks on and everything like that. So maybe all this stuff is just going to be a, an artefact of history. Yeah, that would be a lovely positive note to end on, wouldn't it? I mean, I suppose what I would like to just make a, a, a sort of put my hand up for is that these kind of ridiculous, um, meme science things that get shared by lockdown sceptics makes it sound like anyone who thinks that perhaps every single aspect of lockdown wasn't necessary is a loon. And, and I think that's the danger, isn't it? That it, you yeah. know, it, it, it masks proper policy debate by, by spreading nonsense. Yeah, I should stress I'm not, I was by no means some kind of lockdown fanatic. I think um, there were loads of rules that in hindsight were just really stupid, taped up park benches. Mm. I remember taking my kid to the playground and not being able to, she couldn't go on a slide during lockdown. I mean, it was, it was very I mean, anti-scientific, a lot of the rules, wasn't it? So I remember when we first started our vaccination effort, I was volunteering in a centre and um, it, they hadn't opened any of the windows, but they were still wiping down all of the chairs. So there was really slow dissemination of the like current science findings. And like the woman who was running the centre, she was working like really long days, so she was just doing whatever the NHS guidance was. Yeah. Um, so we've been really slow to make sure that people have the information about how to manage the virus properly, and that's why you've got to do draconian rules because if you're not doing proper public health communication to people about how to keep themselves and their friends and family safe, then they are just going to use whatever the government guidance as a crutch and that is not going to necessarily tailor to everyone's individual situations what do you think about just to sort of uh, we'll, we'll wrap up mm. fairly fairly soon but um what do you think about the point about models as alice was talking about that mm. how 
they've been kind of quite wildly out, especially the what we call diet sage, independent mm. sage, which is the kind of crank version. So I shouldn't say crank version, alternative version of the uh, sage, um, which has put out very scary forecasts. I mean, uh, one thing I c I've said repeatedly is that people need to see forecasts as, as forecasts and not as scenarios and not predictions. Yeah, so obviously when you're making guesses about the future, you cannot you cannot necessarily be 100% right. But I think forecasting is in and of itself a skill. There are people who manage to get the pandemic bang on, and they're people who've been quite good at predicting other things. So in some cases, you want people who are experts within a field. So you do want epidemiologists to look into something. But there are definitely epidemiologists who are experts about epidemiology, but not experts about predicting things. Um, which means they may have been completely overzealous because they were looking for a flu, they were looking for something that was much more dangerous than it was, or they were looking at something much less dangerous than it was. Um, and there are ways in which you can be more likely to be correct. So there are prediction markets, for example. Prediction markets are generally better at um, predicting what's going to happen in the future because people... Does this involve money, like? Yeah. People betting so on people stuff. people okay. bet, um, and if they're correct, then they get money, and it also pulls lots of different people's predictions together. So you have an incentive um, to be correct about things, um, and also within I think Metacalculus is one of them, for example. Within that, they then rank the best predictors, and the best predictors usually end up being better at forecasting even then. Um, so maybe sometimes you want to trust doctors or epidemiologists only but i think you also want people with an outside view who are just like smart generalists yeah. who can who can make guesses about things and i think you should only really take a prediction seriously if someone will also tell you what their percentage certainty is of their prediction okay what their error bars are all right well that's something a bit of sort of intellectual housekeeping um i think probably the best thing we can say about all of this stuff is that Hopefully, the next time we have a pandemic, we will be a little bit better prepared to adopt better rules. Alice is shaking her head with... Uh, well, it'll just be a different sort of pandemic, won't it? We were expecting flu. That's Yeah, we shouldn't. We'll probably expect COVID next yeah, time and exactly. end up with flu. So. I think that is the exact problem we have to try and avoid, actually, yeah. okay. that we will be perfectly prepared for, like, COVID-23. Yeah, right. and it'll just be something completely different, yeah. and it'll attack different sorts of people okay. sorry that's really no it's all right nice jolly note to end on is uh, look forward to the next pandemic it'll be completely different to this one well uh alice aria thank you very much for joining us um and thank you all for listening now i should apologize because the last few podcasts i've erroneously said that the next podcast will be about uh, martin van der Weyer's book the good <laughs> was it the good the bad and the ugly and the greedy, the greedy. The, good, the, good, the good the bad and the greedy but i can 100 percent hand on heart promise because alice has now actually recorded that, that that will be the next CapEx podcast uh, next Friday. So do tune in for that as well. And oh, it includes a juicy anecdote about Boris Johnson. Oh, and yeah, especially for the juicy anecdote about Boris Johnson. <laughs>